0: Hello, we're pleased you've been able to tune in to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program.
1: And I know that because the people who originally heard Jesus say these things found him to be so challenging that it says after hearing what he had to say, thousands of people just walked away. They just said, we're not gonna listen to this anymore. Throughout
0: history, people have read the Bible and stumbled over some of the things Jesus said about himself. In the New Testament book of John, Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life and suggests that whoever comes to him won't be hungry or thirst again. How can that be true? Does Jesus have some special deal with the local supermarket? Or is there more to Jesus than what we credit him? I invite you to stay with us for tonight's episode of Finding Truth Matters as Dr. Corbett explores Jesus' declaration, I am the bread of life.
1: Okay, so I'm going to open in prayer and today we're diving into the longest chapter in the Gospel of John and one of the longest chapters in the New Testament. Actually, there's some pretty profound concepts in here, and we're going to see that John and Jesus, the one whom he describes and narrates, he doesn't shy away from the difficulty of what he has to say. So I think we're going to need to pray, so join me now. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes, open our ears, Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to each one of us and may your word reverberate in our soul. Father, as we look at your word, may our lives be transformed into the image of your Son. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in John chapter 6. This is the section where Jesus describes himself with one of the seven I am statements. And in this section, he's describing himself as I am the bread of life. All through this chapter, as we've seen, really revealing John's heart. John's heart is to bring people to a point where they accept that Jesus was who he said he was and that they turn to him. And we see a progression through the Gospel of John. And that progression goes like this. People would see the signs, they would see the wonders, they would hear what Jesus had to say, and they would believe in him. But then there comes a, a crunch where going from believing to believing in, and then there's a summons that Jesus has. And in this chapter, it's going to come out really, really clearly. And that is, if you're going to believe in Jesus, it involves following and from following, there's going to be a term introduced in this chapter, and it's the term abide. And so, the, and that speaks of intimacy, and we're going to see that in a moment. So I just want to say from the outset, if you're a, a, a stranger to Christianity, if you're new to Christianity, if Christianity is something that you haven't really taken too seriously, you're going to find what Jesus said in this section— really really challenging and i know that because the people who originally heard jesus say these things found him to be so challenging that it says after hearing what he had to say thousands of people just walked away they just said no, we're not we're not going to listen to this anymore and then jesus turns to his disciples and he asks them a question and we're going to have a look at that in a moment so Let's pick up the context where we pick this up in John chapter 6, is you recall that Jesus has fed the 5,000. He's taken two small fish about the size of sardines, and he's taken five small pancakes of bread, barley loaves actually, and he's fed 5,000 men, plus presumably women and children. And that miracle was seen. It was public. It was the first public miracle in the sense that Jesus put his hands on things and there could be no doubt that Jesus was responsible for that. The previous signs, we see Jesus speak the word and he didn't physically touch anything. And those signs then culminate kind of at this point with what we've just seen, the feeding of the 5,000 Something happens in between, though. Jesus is in Bethsaida, which is over on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. The crowd saw that Christ's disciples get into a boat and sail across what they presumed was sail across to Capernaum, which is uh, sort of over on the northwest coast of uh, the Sea of Galilee, about an eight mile uh, sea voyage and about a 30 to 40, 45 kilometre. Walk around the Sea of Galilee. They didn't see Jesus get in the boat, so they know he didn't get in the boat. So we pick up the account now, where really it's the the crowds are curious. It's like, where where are you? And and word got out that Jesus was in was in Capernaum, and so the crowds walked around. They walked that distance. They came to Jesus in Capernaum, and we pick it up in John chapter six and verse twenty-six. Jesus answered them, Truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. John chapter six verse twenty eight. For they said to him, "What must we do to be doing the works of God?" After this, this exchange that Jesus has with these people, it appears that Jesus moved into the area of the synagogue. Now, the synagogue may have had like an, a, a large window, an open window, or it may have had it may have actually not not even had walls. It may have just had uh, pillars, whatever it was. It was sufficient for Jesus to move there and for people to be able to to see and hear him. Now we know that that's the case because what we read in verse 59 is it says, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So presumably he's gone there and particularly wanting his 12 disciples, as will become very clear in a moment, to hear exactly what he was about to tell these crowds who've traveled all the way around from Bethsaida and they've come to hear him. So we read... In John chapter six verse twenty nine, Jesus answered them. Now remember, they've asked the question, "What is the work of God?" And this is what Jesus is about to answer. Jesus answered them, "This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent." So there is this idea that some have that you you have to put your faith in Jesus plus do something, and that something's your effort. And that's why theologians and others call that work. It's the catch-all word that says you do something, you put your faith in Jesus, plus what you do, and that's how you can be made right with God. But Jesus has actually told these people what the work is that they are to do, and it doesn't involve their effort. In fact, it is making him the object of their trust, the object of their belief. Now, this is an amazing exchange that now happens. Jesus says this. And really remarkably, after Jesus had publicly performed the sign of feeding the five thousand, they said to him, Then what sign do you do? That we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now this is bizarre. And John is this is the second time John is pointing this out that a large jewish contingent were just <laughs> just hard to please because in John chapter 2 after Jesus had done his first sign uh, which was turn the water to wine and then he goes to Jerusalem and John simply tells us that he did many signs in Jerusalem and clearly many people would have seen it. otherwise they're not really signs and in John chapter 2 verse 18 the Jews said to him what sign do you show us for doing these things Jesus answered them now here's why some scholars believe that in this statement is embedded the the seventh sign of what Jesus did or they might say because it occurs there this is actually the second sign but listen to what Jesus said John chapter 2 verse 19 Jesus answered them destroy this temple and in 3 days i will raise it up so jesus is actually highlighting or john sorry john is highlighting to the readers of his gospel that despite jesus giving extraordinary signs the hearts of the jewish leaders in particular at that point in john chapter 2 were so hard that they couldn't accept it now here's what we i think we we see here and this is what john seems to be telling us hard Hearts hinder true beliefs. Let me say that again. Hard hearts hinder true beliefs. How do you have a soft heart? What do you have to do? Well, let's continue on because I think we're going to find the answer to that question in the text. We read in verse 31 Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, what's happening here? And what is about to happen in this section of John? Let me just tell you now, as we just pause here for a moment, this is one of the most contentious and hotly debated sermons that Jesus gave. In fact, in many respects, this is the point at which the early church, early enough, uh, divided. Now, when I say early, I mean into the few hundreds AD, they actually began to divide over the meaning of what we're about to look at in this chapter. So let's just consider some of the topics that we're going to see raised here that caused this massive division among Christians. I actually heard someone say recently, I think rather naively, that they said, you know, I wish we could go back to the days when the church was completely united. You know, the first thousand years of the history of the church. Let me tell you, as someone who whose doctoral studies was largely grounded in church history, that's just not the case. The first thousand years was not a golden era of church unity. In fact, far from it. In fact, when I hear someone say the first thousand years of church history were the golden years of church unity, I I just think, I don't think you've studied church history. (laughs) That's... The the people were dividing. And let's have a look at some of the things that we're going to see in this chapter that caused the division based on what Jesus said. So I'm going to bring up these three words on the screen, or three statements. One is the Eucharist. Next one, the Lord's table and a sacrament. And in a moment, I'm going to clarify each of those. And just right now, say the Lord's table is misused. People say they use that as a description or depiction but in essence they're misusing it and I'll show you why in a moment. So here we've got these three words. Let's start with this first one, Eucharist. Eucharist is from the Greek word meaning thanksgiving. In the Lord's Table, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 21, the apostle Paul refers to the Lord's Table. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter same chapter chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians verse 16, he refers to holy communion. And then in the next chapter, he calls it the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20. Now, each of these, essentially, with an asterisk on the Lord's table, as I'll show you in a moment, each of these refer to the, to the same memorial instituted by Christ that involved eating the Paschal lamb, the Passover lamb, and eating unleavened bread, barley bread. And there would have been a glass of, uh, well, there would have been some unfermented wine because the whole idea was that you were in a hurry. No, so everything about that meal said no time to waste. So the lamb was not particularly gourmet. The bread was very plain and the wine would have almost been freshly squeezed uh, grape juice. So it involved those elements of uh, eating the Paschal lamb, Unleavened barley bread, so there's the eating, and then drinking the unfermented wine. Now, in the early church, this meal, this Lord's Supper, was to be done together. It was an act of fellowship of believers in Christ. It represented their fellowship together. And that's recorded by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9. But here's an interesting point. I'll just make this almost as a side note being described the lord's table the word table is not a, not to be understood in a literal sense in the much much the same way as we talk about the office of the president now we don't mean there's a room that, that you know is a room called his office and that's what we're referring to we're referring to a status a position something so it's not to be understood in a literal sense. And when we talk about, you know, come to church to come to the Lord's table, it's not that there should be a literal table, unless, of course, it's explained that, you know, there's a symbolic understanding of this. But table is used in this sense of the Lord's table in the sense of who's authorizing this ordinance, enabling the fellowship to be possible. So let's just quickly draw on this from the Old Testament, where King David when he became king, after King Saul had died, he sought out some family members of Jonathan. Uh, that was uh, King Saul's son. And he, fa- he found that there was, there was someone, uh, a, ma- a young man by the name of Mephibosheth, who was crippled in his feet. He was dropped as a young baby and his legs were broken and never set and he became paralyzed in his legs. But David reached out to him in kindness And invited him to partake at the king's table. That meant he was welcome to join King David in the palace, or what was the palace at that time, to join him for a meal. So the meal wasn't the important thing, the invitation was the important thing. So when we talk about believers coming to the Lord's table, Really, you need to understand this in the way that the Bible has has filled this in in the Old Testament. It means we now have access into the throne room of God. We have access into God's presence. It's when we come to the Lord's table that we eat of the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's table is what happens when he saves you. It happens once, and then we can take advantage of it for the rest of our days. But the Lord's Supper, in many churches, is done once a week. So there's a, there is a difference there. I just wanted to clarify that. So one is about status and one is about a regular occurrence. Let's look at this other word, the word sacrament. It's used in different ways uh, by Christians of diverse uh, traditions. And they all, with almost without exception, ground their understanding of this word sacrament in John chapter 6, so l- let me look at some of the ways this word sacrament is used. Firstly, a ritual instituted by Christ. That's the first way it's used. But then there's another way that word is thought of in church history. And it's this. And this was Augustine who said this. It was an outward sign of an inward grace. What's the inward grace? Our salvation. The outward sign. It's bread and wine it's it's an outward sign of an inward grace but water baptism would be the other uh, universally recognized sacrament the third way of understanding what a sacrament was would be that it was a ritual that actually transmits divine grace now you'll see as we read through this text you'll see oh i can see how they would see that i can i can understand that but what we need to do is to recognize that scripture interprets scripture so in other words it's not by partaking of holy communion the lord's supper that you become a christian that's not what does it and how do we know that because of what the rest of scripture teaches about becoming saved and in fact if you're here now and and you don't have assurance that you have been forgiven of your sins adopted by God as one of his children, brought to his table as a son and a daughter or a daughter. (laughs) If you don't have that assurance, you can have it. You are not a million miles away from God. You are just one prayer away. You may even be in a situation where you've just known nothing but rejection all your life. But you can come to God as your father and you will know an acceptance, a love and a forgiveness that is incomprehensible. Incomprehensible. And I invite you to come to the Lord's table, and I'll do so at the end of this presentation. In John chapter 6, verse 32, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father, note the change of tense, gives you the true bread from heaven. So they've said, well, Moses gave us bread, what are you going to do? As so you can see the challenge, they've asked for a sign and now they're suggesting one. Whoa, what? Moses did this, why don't you do this? And that's pretty ridiculous in one sense because what do you think he did yesterday? <laughs> it's like he fed 5,000 people <laughs> with five little loaves of bread. Come on, guys. So, oh my goodness. Anyway, I wanted to point out to you, Moses did something, but at that time that Jesus was speaking to them, He changes the tense to present, continuous tense. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. In other words, right now, God is giving you the true bread. And who was that true bread? Well, obviously it was Jesus in verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. What kind of life? A life of unimpeded access to God himself. A life where your sins, the very thing that block you from having peace and intimacy with God. Jesus has come down as the bread from God, the bread of God, the bread from heaven. And he wants to give you life. You can have that life. You're not a million miles away. You are just one prayer away. Then he said, Then they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. It's, like, it's almost as if they can't hear what he's telling them. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now get this, Don Carson, D.A. Carson, he points out, notice what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, Come and eat me. At this point, he's saying, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me, shall never thirst. Now now we get, as we were going to see, I'm going to use scripture to interpret scripture, that when Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, this is exactly what he's talking about. He's just saying it in a different way. So what does it mean to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood? It doesn't mean a literal thing. It means exactly what it says here in John 6:34 and 35. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. That's all you have to do. Come to Jesus, surrender to Him. Whoever believes in me, not just believes me, but believes in me, it means put your trust in Him, shall never thirst. So, this is where we are going to see Jesus now is going to say some things that these people are just not going to get, and I think there's a reason for it. Verse 36 But I said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. So, here's the question. Jesus was standing right there, talking with them. They could literally touch him. One woman did, and, and her uh, continual flow of blood for 12 years ceased immediately. The dead were raised. Jairus' daughter, the disciples at least, saw Jesus walk on water. So here's the question. Why is it that despite all this evidence, some will just not believe? Why is that? In verse 37, Jesus has this, I think, profound statement. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I will never cast out. And this is the assurance I want to give you now. And it's not me. I'm just the messenger. I'm just telling you what Jesus said. If you come to him now with an open heart, he will accept you. He will welcome you. So here's what belief has come to mean so far in John's gospel. It means you've got to have an open heart. It means that you accept the evidence. There is good evidence. There is evidence giving good reasons to believe. And belief involves another step, and that is a willingness to follow. A willingness to follow. Verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So I want you to notice that again. Come to the sun, or looks on the sun, and believes in him. So the first one, Jesus said, this is like eating a meal. And the next one is like drinking a drink. Not just any meal, a meal that will eternally satisfy you and a drink that will satisfy you forever. It will be everlasting satisfaction. And Jesus says here, I will raise him up on the last day. And that right there is Jesus saying, The last day is the day when, and every Jew knew this, all people will be judged at the end of time. Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. So belief isn't merely about gaining entrance to heaven after you die. Goodness me. Belief leads to eternal life filled with infinite joy from an incomprehensibly intimate relationship with God. This is what Christianity is really all about. Notice these words. Eternal life Right now, starting right now, filled with infinite joy from an incomprehensibly intimate relationship with God. Jesus says in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. So there's that connection. Come to me, you'll live forever. Now he's using this metaphoric language of eating bread and he'll live forever forever. And the bread that I will give you for life of the world is my flesh. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh, Jesus said. Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? This is not the first time we've seen people take Jesus in a wooden, literal sense. They, they didn't get it. They, we've seen this with the Samaritan woman when Jesus told her, you can drink a, a, a water that will never run dry. And she said, oh, well, give me that water then. And she didn't get what he was talking about. And here they're, they're just not getting it. They're just not getting it. I think I've got a hunch as to what's going on here. But notice this. It's almost with a, a tinge of sadness. But it says this. But When many of his disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? So we've seen the Jews, they came, they say, give us a sign. They weren't satisfied with the feeding of the 5,000. They weren't satisfied with the man at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years lame, healed in an instant. They weren't satisfied with Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead, They weren't satisfied with water being turned to wine, plus all the other miracles Jesus had done in Jerusalem. They misunderstood Jesus, but so did the disciples. They didn't get it, and they didn't get that Jesus was not speaking literally. They thought he was. So much of what Jesus actually said throughout this phase of his ministry was actually veiled from his listeners. And might I point out, also from the forces of darkness. Now I'm not just pulling that out of the air. It actually, Paul the apostle actually says this in 1 Corinthians chapter two and verse eight, where he says, "None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory." The veil, this veil of not really understanding what was going on here, was due to their own spiritual dullness and the providence of God to preserve his son from from what could have happened until and note the quotes around this until the hour the hour and we we see this expression used by john in john chapter 5 verse 25 verse 28 in john chapter 8 verse 20 john chapter 12 verse 23 where it says and jesus answered them the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified john 13 verse 1 now Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So again, don't make the same mistake as his original hearers thinking, "Okay, I better start my watch because this is only going to go for an hour. If that's how you're reading and understanding that, you're missing the point. Jesus spoke to his disciples at this stage of his ministry with figures of speech but when the hour was to come he says he would speak to them plainly so and we see this in john chapter 16 verse 25 so in other words there was a certain veiled mystery about what jesus was saying but the veil was going to be lifted after jesus died and rose from the dead so john chapter 16 verse 25 i've said these things to you in figures of speech the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. So we notice from church history that later on Christians read into these statements about eating my body, eating my flesh, and drinking my blood as if it referred to the Eucharist. John chapter 6, verse 54. Is probably one of the reasons why we can forgive people who thought this. It says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. But the point that we've already seen Jesus has established, which was meant to, the veil was meant to be lifted after he rose from the dead, was that he has already said, What it means to eat me is simply this come to me, look unto me, and come to me. And to drink of his blood is simply to trust him, to follow him. This is, this is what he's saying. So when Jesus spoke of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, he's referring to the salvation that would be made possible by his death. Verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. And I in him. And this is where belief finds its landing. This It lands here because it's not just about believe. It's not just about believe in. It's not just about follow. It's about abide with Christ. How do you do that? How do you do that today? If you want to know Christ, you can abide with Christ by becoming someone who reads the word of God regularly and prays and not just a grocery list but a prayer of, God, have your way in my life. You begin to pray prayers of surrender. So believing leads to believing in, which leads to following, which leads to abiding in an intimate surrender. And when you think about it, this is how relationships that are meant to be deep, this is how they transact. So we see in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Hmm. I want you to notice what Peter expressed at this point. Because this is, this is what believing in involves. It involves, as we'll see Peter say in a moment, absolute trust in even in times of confusion, even when you don't understand what's going on. So listen to what Peter says in verse 68 and 9. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So here's what we need to know too. And I I hope that what I've shared with you will lead you To take that journey of belief, believe, believe in, follow, abide, and come close in surrender. And that word surrender is a beautiful word. It's the word captured by the other word, worship. To worship means to surrender. So here's what we need to know based on what Jesus was telling his audience at this time. That Jesus Christ was and is God. That's actually John 1 verse 1. And this is illustrated in John 6. He is Lord over all. In other words, he's Lord over all the earth, all the universe, and the only Savior of mankind. Thus, you are not a million miles away from God. Right now, you may feel like it. I don't know what you've done. I don't know who you've done it with. I don't know who knows what you've done. But you may be carrying a load of guilt and shame that is unbearable. You may have trouble sleeping. You may have trouble numbing the pain of what you've done. You may have tried alcohol. You may have turned to a needle. You may have turned to all kinds of other distractions. You may be eating yourself into an early grave in the attempt to take away the pain of guilt and shame. But right now I'm going to tell you, you are one prayer away from being set free. You are just one prayer away. Will you come to him? Will you pray that prayer? I'm going to lead you in a prayer now and I trust that you will pray this prayer and if you do, contact us, findingtruthmatters.org and we'll get some material to you and to help you on your journey. So pray this prayer. Father God, please forgive me for what I've done. Come and help me now to live for you. I pray. Amen. And amen means let it be. Let me just pray a blessing over all who have been here today. And thank you for listening. And if you're listening by the internet, if you're listening by radio, if you're watching live right now, wherever you are, let me just pray a blessing over you. In Christian tradition, we speak what translates into English as good words benediction, benediction. Let me pronounce this benediction. I pray, Lord God, that we might know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Bless all who've joined with me now and may their hearts be full and their souls nourished. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: If you'd like to listen again, or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. For tonight's program, select the Last Gospel, Part Eleven, from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, believing comes from having an open heart, finding evidence that gives good reason to believe, and having a willingness to follow. Believing in Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is far more than a ticket to heaven. It leads to eternal life and infinite joy being in relationship with God. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lugana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.